get real quiet. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Um, good to be with you all this morning. Good to have some of you guys back from babies and vacation. And it's good to be with the family of God. Uh, if you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship. Um, comes from one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 24. And this has a bunch of questions in it. Right? Some of them are, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? And it says, the person that has clean hands and a pure heart. And there's almost this picture of sorrow, of who, who can ascend? Who can stand in the holy place of God? And then we get these cries of the gates of the mountain, the gates of this hill, these doors opening for one person, and it's the king of glory. It's the Lord himself. So... Uh, I'll read the bold section if you'll read after me the non-bold. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 302. We'll sing the great hymn written by Martin Luther himself, A Mighty Fortress. One of the verses that I like is the third verse. It says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's sing this praise to our God. Fight our 
Good morning. God is so much outside, transcendent of who we are, where we are. The holiness of God, I spoke to this the other week, where the holiness of God is, is just, I don't think we really grasp that concept of His holiness and how much we are removed from that holiness. So in Jeremiah 7, 3 through 4, and then 8 through 11. If you'd follow along with me if you have your Bibles or not, it's in your handout. Amend your ways. This is the Lord's, or Jeremiah speaking from the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after all other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say that we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? It's pretty emphatic. Anytime you see a repetition like that, uh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, it's huge. If you would all pray with me this prayer of confession, please. Almighty Father, you are the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. Yet we, who have broken your law, do not have clean hands and a pure heart. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Please turn to hymn number 209. We will sing, There is a Fountain.
Ephesians 2, 13 and 19 through 22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for a day that we can come as brothers and sisters, as you make us a part of your, your temple, Lord. 
as we build up one another, as you build up us as of the body of Christ. Lord, we're, we're thinking of uh, this church in, in Indy. It's called the Indy Reformed URC Church Plant in Indianapolis. Father, we lift them up to you. It's a new church plant as well. Father, we, we ask that your favor would be shown on them uh, as they look for a place to, to, uh, to congregate. Father, we pray that you would open up the doors, much as you've done here today, Lord, and, and you've, you've opened it up for us. Father, have favor on them, that they would have a place that is safe and dry out of the elements, that can glorify your name in Jesus' name. Lord, we think of our neighbors up north in Canada who's having their church buildings burned to the ground because of their devotion to you. Lord, we ask that you would minister to them in a real way, Lord, and that we may, may understand that, that this very well could be something that would come into our, our neighborhoods. Father, protect us. Enable us to walk in your strength. Enable us to proclaim the gospel regardless of what is happening around us. Strengthen us. Give us wisdom, Lord, on what to do in Jesus' name. Be with us this day as, as Kindle brings, Pastor Kindle brings the word. Ready our hearts and our minds that we be receptive to your word. And we thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us in Jesus' name. Our confession of faith is from the 1689 this morning. If you would read along with me, starting at the light of nature. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, Served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Amen. You can be seated. If you want to open up your Bibles with me or turn on your phones to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. So we've been going through our study of John's gospel. We went through the prologue. We saw the first 18 verses, how they sort of lay the themes and the groundwork for all that John is going to talk about through his gospel. And we'll see that this morning today in some ways. And so the last couple of weeks, we began the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We saw him baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit descend upon him. And we saw this commissioning of Jesus to go and begin his public ministry. And we talked last week specifically about this first sign that Jesus does. And that the way that John uses this word, signs, Throughout his gospel, 
is a little bit different than the other Gospels, that where the other Gospels focus on the more miraculous power of Christ in doing these miracles and healing people, John uses this word signs, that his focus is not so much on the power of Christ in doing these miracles, but on the person of Christ, that these signs are meant to not make us focus on the things themselves, and last week it was turning water into wine, but not focus on that, but focus on who Jesus is. That he is the one that will fill, fulfill the law perfectly and redeem his people by his blood. Make this new way of purification. That he will bring this new covenant that will bring joy. That just as he brought joy to this party by bringing wine where there was not any in the same way Christ in bringing the new covenant fulfills the law for his people and by means of his blood pictured in the wine purifies his people. So we looked at that last week. That was the first sign. And there's seven signs throughout John's gospel. And we're going to look at the second sign today. The cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple. And we're going to see a little bit of a contrast from last week. Where last week Jesus was this one that came to the wedding and he saved the day, right? He brought joy, he brought wine, he brought abundance. This week he brings anger. He brings righteous anger. That he comes and he sees what's happening in the temple and he is upset and he cleanses the temple. And he comes and he purifies. And so we'll see this contrast between what Christ did last week in his first sign and what he does this week, where last week we saw Christ bringing this new way of purification, that it won't be through the law, it'll be through his blood. This week we'll see Christ coming as the new house of God's dwelling presence. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll read verses 13 through 22. I'll pray for us and then we'll Look at our passage. This is the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to themselves, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
for your revelation to us, that you have not left us to our own devices, that you've given us your infallible, revealed word, that you've spoken to us clearly. And this morning, as we look at this sign of Christ in his earthly ministry, we pray that you would help us to see the glory of Christ. And like the disciples here, that we would hear the word and believe. And as John says at the end of his gospel, that by hearing these signs and seeing the things that Jesus did, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. We are incapable of doing this on our own. We pray for your spirit, Lord, this morning to come, to dwell amongst us, and to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and be changed. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I don't know about you guys, but I get angry sometimes. <laughs> if any of you have kids, maybe you can. <laughs> I see some head nodding. Or maybe it's road rage or whatever it is. Anger is something that comes up in our lives a lot, whether we want to admit it or not. Sometimes my wife will see me taking a big deep breath. And she'll say, what are you upset about? You know, she knows that when I'm upset, whether it's the kids or something's going on, we all get angry, right? But usually it's about petty things. It's about things that don't really matter that much. Maybe your kids spill sand on the carpet or somebody sitting at a red light for too long and the light turns green and come on, you know, or something petty like that. But rarely do we get righteously angry. Rarely do we actually see someone sinning against God or blaspheming God or the things of God and do we have a righteous zeal. What's it say in the scriptures? Be angry and do not sin. That there's a type of anger that is not sinful, that is zealous for the things of God and the purity of the things of God. And so that's what we see here this morning. So our outline this morning is we'll look first at the scene. In verses 13 through 17, we'll see the scene, this great scene that we see and we read this morning. And then we'll look at the sign in verses 18 through 20. And then finally, we'll look at the significance of the scene and of the sign in verses 21 through 22. So we come to verse 13, and we see that Jesus has come from Canaan, and he's now in Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem, at that time in the ancient world, was the center of religious worship. It was the religious center of the day. It's where people came, and it's where the temple was, as we'll see. It's where the temple was. And for the Jews specifically, this was the center of religion. And especially because it was the time of the Passover. We see that in verse 13, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, that this was an annual festival that would happen every year, and people would travel from hundreds of miles to come to the temple. They would come to Jerusalem, they would come to the temple, and they would come to offer sacrifices, offer their offerings, and there would be a big event. And so even though Jerusalem was a big city as it was, during this time there would be many people from many different areas coming for the Passover. And we see here that there's these sellers of sacrifices and these money changers. And we can, in one sense, see the necessity of these things, right? There's a big festival going on, there's a big event happening, 
and people would be traveling from a long ways away. And so they wouldn't want to have to travel with all their oxen and sheep and pigeons, right? They would want to come to the city from having traveled a long way and they would want to buy a sacrifice. And also because they would come from a foreign land, they would even need to have their money exchanged, right? They might have a different currency. And so we can see the necessity of these two things that we see in the temple, the seller of the sacrifices and the changers of money. And yet there's a problem. <laughs> there's a problem. And the problem is not so much with the vocation of these people, but with the location of these people. Not so much what they were doing, but where they were doing it. That they were doing it in the temple. They were doing it in the house of God. And we see in verse 15 that Jesus does not approve of this. And it's not that he just doesn't approve of it, that he's filled with righteous anger. That he's filled with righteous anger. Look at the things that he does. He makes a whip. He drives the people out of the temple. He pours out the money of the money changers. He flips over tables. I mean, this is crazy. This is, this is different activity that we've seen of Christ so far in the Gospels. And why is he upset? Because these people are breaking the commandment of God. The second commandment. They are not worshiping God in the way he's prescribed. That the temple of God was to be a house of prayer. And they've made it a den of robbers, a place of trade, as we saw in our verses today. And this is sort of a contrast, as I said, from what we saw last week, where Christ is this one that's bringing wine, he's saving the party, and yet this week he's angry, he's upset. And we have to ask ourselves this important question, does this view of Jesus fit into our picture of who Jesus is, right? So many of us, whether we think about it or not, we have a picture of Jesus in our heads, that he's this meek and mild Savior, that he would never hurt a fly, and yet we see in these verses today him flipping over these tables, pouring out money, that he's angry about something, specifically the things of God and the worship of God. And so we have to question ourselves and think, have we created an image of God in our head that is not accurate with what the scriptures say? Have we created a God that's not really upset about sin or upset about how God is worshipped? Have we invented a God that sort of sweeps in under the rug and maybe lets sin slide? And we see here Jesus get righteously angry about these things. But as we said, Christ is God. <laughs> he is God incarnate. So this is not sinful of Christ to do. This is not wrong of Christ to do. He's not sinning here. He is zealous for God and the things of God. And you and I, as I said, can be zealous. Sometimes we can be righteously angry, but usually our zeal is misplaced and misguided. <laughs> How often do we get angry about things that we don't fully understand or righteously angry about something that we don't have the full story on. But here we see Christ. He knows the full story. He knows what's going on. And he is righteously angry about what has happened. Because they've turned the house of God into a house of trade. And we see the disciples remember Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. 
that this Psalm of David is talking about one who will be zealous for God and the things of God and that this zeal will be so intense that it will consume him. We could even remember Malachi 3 that we talked about a couple weeks ago with John the Baptist that Malachi looks forward and he says, there's going to be one that prepares the way before me and the Lord will suddenly come to his temple, but he's going to come to purify and cleanse it. And so we see Jesus doing that here, that he's come to refine, he's come to cleanse, he's come to purify. And some of you might be thinking in your heads, if you're familiar with the other Gospels, I thought that Jesus cleansing the temple was at the end of his ministry. If you read the other Gospel accounts, every time there's a cleansing of the temple, it's at the end of Christ's ministry. It's right before he's crucified. This happens at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And this has caused people to question the Bible. <laughs> it's caused them to question the history of the scriptures, that John is just throwing this story wherever he wants it. We can't really trust the history of the Bible. We can't trust the story that John is telling. We can't trust any of it. Jesus here, he's angry, he, maybe he's sinning. We can't trust this story of the temple cleansing. Where is it? Is it here? Is it there? I mean, there's three years difference. What's going on here? Well, I think that we can find the answer in the Old Testament, in a sense. That in the book of Leviticus, there's all these ceremonial laws given. And you can read the book of Leviticus. As I've said, maybe you've gotten stuck there in your Bible reading plan. <laughs> You're reading about all these Laws, all these ceremonial cleansings that need to take place. And one of them is, in Leviticus 14, is this Levitical cleansing of a house that's diseased. That when a house had a disease in it, like leprosy or something, that a priest would go into the house and examine the house. And there would always be two visits. There would always be two visits. That the first visit, the first examination would be to see where the impurity was, where the disease was, and would be to try to purify it. They would take some of the stones out of the wall if this disease had gotten on the wall, they'd scrape off the plaster, and then they would leave. But the second visit was different, that if the disease persisted in the house, it would be deemed unclean, and every stone would be removed. One by one, brick by brick, stone by stone, the house would be broken down. And we see here what I think is a picture of this in what Jesus did. That at the beginning of his ministry, he comes to the temple, he sees that it's diseased. That people had brought wrong worship into the house of God. They turned it into a den of robbers. And he, as the great priest, has come to cleanse the temple. And he goes throughout his ministry, and then again at the end of his ministry, he comes and he sees the temple is still diseased. That they're still not worshiping God rightly. And what does he say in Matthew 23? That your house is left to you desolate. And he actually curses the temple and says, not one stone will be left upon another. So we see here that the people had come to trust in the temple itself, as we saw in Jeremiah's day, and they failed to see that something greater than the temple was here, that Christ had come. And so all that to account for those two seemingly contradictory passages. 
I think we can say that that there was two visits of Christ to the temple. And so we see that the house is diseased. The temple of God is diseased in the sense that what was supposed to be holy and sacred had been blasphemed, had been marred, and that they had used the temple of God in a way that God had not commanded. So that's the scene. That's verses 13 through 17. And now we'll look at the sign. And it's really interesting. In verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, how dare you? How dare you overturn the tables? How dare you pour out our money? They knew what they were doing was wrong. They don't question what Jesus did. They don't say, how dare you? They say, what sign do you give? They knew what they were doing was wrong. And notice they ask, they demand the sign of Jesus. It's almost as if they're saying, we knew what we were doing. We knew it was wrong, but we've done it this way. We've always done it this way, and we made a lot of money doing it this way. And so, who do you think you are? What authority do you have to do this? Not that we're wrong, we know we're wrong, but who do you think you are? It should remind us of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That these Jews, they wanted a sign. What do we see in John chapter 6? Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's turned a couple loaves and a fish into multitudes. There's baskets left over. And the Jews come up to him after and say, what sign do you do? They can't even see the glory of Christ in this, and they can't see the glory of Christ here. That they demand a sign, that they're insatiable, they always want more. And we see Jesus respond to them in verse 19. He says, you want a sign? Here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now this would have gotten their attention, right? This would have gotten their attention, that the temple that they were looking at was, as I said, the religious center of the day. It was where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. It was where sacrifices were offered. It's where offerings were given. It's where the presence of God was. And Jesus is saying, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they were confused, and we can see that in verse 20, and they say... It's taken 46 years for us to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? And it's sort of interesting, the account just ends. Notice, there's no other interaction. There's, Jesus doesn't say anything. There's no clarification. The Jews don't say anything. The account just ends there. And then we see John's comments in verses 21 through 22. That what does this mean? What is Jesus saying? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. John says this, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. That these Jews had misunderstood, as a lot of people do in John's gospel. They had mistaken the physical for the spiritual that they demanded a sign, but that the sign that they would be given would not be what they thought. 
They were looking for a demonstration of power, right? They were looking for Jesus to build a new temple, a bigger temple, a golden temple, or whatever it was, to have an earthly kingdom, to have an earthly rule, to have an earthly reign, a physical temple made with hands. They wanted him to demonstrate his power physically. But Christ comes not to demonstrate his power through these physical signs, but through the death and resurrection of himself. That he was speaking about the temple of his body. That his demonstration of power would not be through these physical things, but through his death on the cross. That he would be buried. That he would raise again on the third day. That the power that they were looking for was external. It was triumphant. It was reigning over the Romans or whatever it was. But Christ had come to not be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that Christ, as the word of God made flesh, what did John say in the prologue? He tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. That he, that is Christ, was the true dwelling place of God among men. And that by his death and his resurrection, he would secure a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a temple that would be made without hands. And we see his disciples understood this. In verse 22, it says, When therefore he, that is Jesus, was raised from the, the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That they not only remembered the words of Christ, that he would destroy the temple and in three days raise it up, they not only remembered that when he raised from the dead on the third day, they remembered the Old Testament scriptures that they pointed to and looked forward to this third day resurrection of Christ. That the Old Testament looked forward to the coming death and resurrection of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? What does Jesus say in the Gospels account? He's speaking to the Pharisees. They're demanding the sign. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. This is the only sign that you'll be given. The sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the beast for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth and raise again. That that was the sign. The sign was not this glorious external thing. It was the suffering and death, burial and resurrection of Christ. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament, now come to fulfillment. So as we step back and try to contemplate what's happening here and think about the implications of this, a couple things to take away. The first we see explicitly that Christ is the true temple. He's the true temple. He's the true dwelling place of God among men. That what the old physical temple pointed to was Christ. That its purpose was always and ever to point to Jesus. That he would be the place where sacrifices were offered, namely the sacrifice of himself. That he would be the place where God's presence dwelt among men. That the physical temple was a type. It was a shadow. It was a picture of what Christ would come to do 
and be as the true reality, the true temple. And that the whole book of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the shadows. Don't go back to the shadows. That the substance is here. That the priests, the sacrifices, the temple, all of that stuff was pointing to the person and work of Christ. And that to go back to the temple, to go back to the sacrifices, to go back to the physical, it's almost, I think of it like a picture versus a person. That if, say, someone was going, you know, maybe they were in the army or the marines, and they were leaving to go off to sea, and the wife had a picture of her husband. And the picture tells real details about the person. You can see physical features, you can see aspects of the person, but it's not the real thing. And then it's almost as if the husband were to be to come back and the wife would be to say, I choose the picture over the person. I'd rather look at the picture than my husband, who I haven't seen for years. That that's what it's like to go back to the temple, to go back to the priest, to go back to the sacrifices. That We lived in Utah for years. They build temples everywhere. They go back to the temple. Many people think that we need to go back to the temple. And anything that points us to anything but Christ is to go back to the shadows. What does Jesus say one page further in John's Gospel? He says to the woman at the well, There's a day coming when neither on this temple nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But a day is coming when my people will worship me in spirit and in truth. And in Hebrews 12, it says that we haven't come to a place that can be touched. We haven't come to Mount Sinai, but we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city, the place of angels and numerous gatherings where Christ has come as the mediator of a new covenant that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection brought a new creation, a new people of God that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he poured out his spirit and he built the church, the temple of God. That the people of God in Christ are the temple. They are the church. They are the people of God. That's what we read in our assurance of pardon this morning, that Christ, by his spirit, is building the temple. That Christ is the temple and all those that are found in him are the dwelling place of God. And that this has a lot of practical application. You might say, Kendall, what's the big point? What's the big idea? Ephesians 2, yeah, we're the temple of God. What does that mean? What does it mean? That Christ coming and cleansing the temple here in John chapter 2 shows us something. That the house of God and the worship of God are holy and sacred things. That they're holy and sacred things. That Hebrews 12 says that we should do them with reverence and awe. That the worship of God and the house of God are holy and sacred things. That the people of God are holy and sacred. And therefore, sin should be killed, expelled, right? That we shouldn't make friends with our sin. That we should kill our sin. That Christ coming and redeeming us has implications. And sadly in our day, another application is that many people have taken this idea and abused it. That just as the money changers and the sellers of sacrifices used God's house in a way that was improper for their own gain, 
in the prosperity gospel, we see the same thing. We see people using the things of God and the worship of God to fill their pockets and to manipulate others. But this passage, I think, not only speaks to people using the house of God for financial gain, but any activity that God has not prescribed. Any activity that God has not commanded. That we're not to invent new ways of worshiping God. That we're to come before God in the way that he's prescribed. That what's happening in John 2 is not so much the nature of what they're doing, right? They're selling sacrifices, nothing wrong with that. They're changing money, nothing wrong with that. It's where they're doing it and how they're doing it. And that in the same way, we need to come before God with reverence and awe, right? That the Pharisees and the people here, they didn't question that what they were doing is wrong. They didn't care. They just wanted to see a sign. They wanted to see something from God. And that by nature of us being in Christ, the presence of God dwells in us, and this has implications. So hopefully that's clear today, that we shouldn't try to corrupt the worship of God and the things of God but should treat them with reverence and awe. And it's sort of crazy when you look at the end of the scriptures, because what happens in Revelation chapter 22, also written by John, that there's a great picture of the end, of the final consummation of all things. And what does John say? That in the city, there was no temple. There was no temple. Why? Because everything is temple. Because God is dwelling amongst his people. That the gospel has gone out to the nations. That the temple is being built. That's what we see in the book of Acts. God building the temple through his spirit. And we come to the end of all things and there's no temple. That everything has been made pure. That there's no more sin. There's no more suffering. And so in our own lives, when we, when we struggle with our sin, when we are not pure, right? We can come and we can remember Christ's sacrifice, that he is the true temple. He's the one that makes us pure. And that at the end of all things, he will purify us completely. And that there will be no sin, there will be no mourning, there will be no suffering, that everything will be made new. That this is the great hope of the Christian. And we see that today in John chapter 2. So will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word, for this passage, that there's many profound things here, many things that confound us, Lord, if we're honest. How can it be that Christ is the temple? How can it be that the people of God are the temple of God, and yet you tell us in your word that you dwell among us, that you dwell in us, and that this is a great seal of our salvation? That we have a hope that's outside of this world. That's not bound to any physical place or physical thing. That they can burn our churches. That they can burn these things. But the house and the presence of God is not limited by that. That by your spirit you are building your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this morning, Lord, may we look to Christ as the true temple. As the true dwelling place of God. And those that are in him, may we have assurance this morning that by your spirit you are building us up into a dwelling place of God and that at the end of all things 
you will be glorified in the glory of your Son. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So we come to part of our service each week where we remember what Christ has done. That as he said in the scriptures, destroy this temple, but in three days I'll raise it up. That that's exactly what happened. What did Jesus say? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I am able to bring it back. That that is what Christ did. That he had ultimate authority and power. And that Christ's body being destroyed on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, was for us. It was for sinners like us. That this that we partake of every week is not a meal for those that have it all figured out. It's not a place where we come and brag about how we have it all together. It's the exact opposite. It's where we come and recognize our weakness, recognize our frailty, looking to Christ who nourishes us by his word and spirit. And so we can say with confidence that what we're doing is a true means of grace, that it's a visible word of God's promises, that as surely as we break the bread and drink the cup, that we're partaking of Christ and all his benefits, that he died for us, that our salvation is sure. Why? Not because we did anything, but because he's done it. He's done it all. So if you're not a believer, if you don't believe in Christ, we ask that you abstain, that you not partake, that Paul has strong words for those that eat or drink in an unworthy manner, that aren't examining themselves. And so we need to do that every week. We need to not get complacent. We need to truly look at our own hearts and see the ways that we've been sinful, that we've gone against God, that we've been like the money changers, that we've done things that are wrong. And yet, we shouldn't stay there. We should run to Christ. We should run to Him for salvation, for assurance, knowing that He did it so that we might have joy and rejoice in His finished work. So, we're reminded of our Lord's words on the night He was betrayed. He took the bread and He broke it and He gave thanks and He said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That his temple, his body was destroyed, but it was raised again to newness of life. So let's pray this morning. Lord. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, for this supper that is yours, <laughs> that it's not something that we've invented for our benefit, but it's something that you've given us, that we write, remember the promises of the new covenant, that our sin is forgiven, our iniquity is cleansed, that you've given us your spirit, and that by the blood of Christ, We've been purified and made right into a dwelling place by the Spirit. So help us this morning, Lord, to confess our sins, but also to rejoice with great gladness, knowing that you have done it, it is finished, and we have hope in that alone. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.
So if you would come and form a line at the center, take the elements back to your seat, and we'll partake of them together. So this bread that we break is a communion with the body of Christ and that we take it together to remember that we are one in Christ and that in Christ we are united to him. So may we take the bread and remember and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the same way, we take the cup, the cup of wine, the cup of joy, knowing that his blood was spilled so that our souls might be purified. So we may we take, drink, and believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Amen. If you want to stand, and we'll respond now by singing... The great hymn, It Is Well.
come now to a time where we give a portion of what we've been given back to God, not to earn anything from Him, but to worship Him for all that He's graciously given us. So let's accept our tithes and offerings this morning. Lord, we thank You for all that You've given us this day, that our breath in our lungs, that we're reminded that Your mercies are new each morning. We thank you for this building, for all of our jobs and the ways that you provide for our families. We pray that out of worship we would give a part of that back to you so that you might be glorified and that your church might be built throughout the earth. We pray all these things in your son's name. the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings